Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show, our theme, Christianity and its relationship to politics and pop culture. Today, we're going to discuss the relationship between the Church of Jesus Christ and the people of Israel, the Jews, because this has been a source of aggravated controversy and intense debate for the past 2,000 years. Since anti-Semitism is on the rise, the subject seems very, very appropriate today. Frankly, and unfortunately, this subject is always appropriate. People often puzzle over this strange phenomenon. Why should there be such tension? Well, anti-Semitism itself, I explained in a previous show, it's called The Mystery of Anti-Semitism. You can still hear that off the Bob Siegel Show podcast. Go to cgmradio.com bob. You can subscribe to my podcast or just find that particular episode, The Mystery of Anti-Semitism. Today, I'm going to key in on this a little more from a theological point of view for the most part, and we will be discussing this as a series. This is the beginning of a series today. So again, we go back over this question, why should there be such controversy and debate over what God's role is for the history of Israel? After all, Jesus was himself Jewish, so were his disciples. In fact, the original church was made up of so many Jews that when Gentiles first expressed interest in Jesus, the apostles Apostles had quite an interesting time trying to figure out if Gentiles needed to first become Jewish as a prerequisite for receiving the Messiah. In time, fewer and fewer Jews and more and more Gentiles joined the church. In the centuries that characterized our 2,000-year roughly church history, Gentile Christians developed a very blemished record in their treatment of the Jews. Jews have been viewed as a cursed people, often designated Christ killers. They have been banished, harassed, and murdered in the name of Christianity. Church anti-Semitism has quite a range, from 2nd century church leaders to the Crusades, to the Inquisitions of the Catholic Church, to pogroms in the hands of Protestant-run countries. While not every Christian has been anti-Semitic, many have still taught erroneous ideas about the Jews, namely that God was through with them and that any prophecies or promised blessings about Israel were withdrawn and are awaiting fulfillment in the church instead. The New Testament word for church, ecclesia, refers to a gathering. Supposedly, this gathering, made up of multiple nations and ethnicities, makes up the new people of God and new resources recipients for his blessings. Theological titles come and go, but the most familiar current heading for the idea of God's switched blessings is called replacement theology. Now, there is an aggressive response to replacement theology, which seeks to re-educate Christians about their Jewish origins. Today, many converted Jews claim they can be both Christian and Jewish at the same time. Some of them even drop the term Christian, all the while holding on to their belief that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah of Israel. They call themselves Messianic Jews, or sometimes completed Jews. Often, they prefer to use the Hebrew name for Jesus, Yeshua, and the Hebrew name for Christ, Mashiach. Now, before going on, in order to invoke some objectivity, let me say from the onset that I myself am a converted Jew. I accepted Jesus as my Savior back in college as a result of a dynamic encounter with the Spirit of God. So genuine was this experience that when given the choice to deny Christ or be disowned by my own parents, I chose to leave home. I was disinherited and ended up working my way through college under the blessing and protection of God. 
Nobody will be able to call me an anti-Semite, and yet I have serious problems with the Hebrew Roots Movement. I have done other radio shows where I've critiqued the Hebrew Roots Movement. One that you can go and listen to is a debate I did, really an informal debate with somebody from this movement who called in my radio show. And so I have trouble, my friends, with both of these extremes. Replacement theology goes too far on one side. The Hebrew Roots Movement goes too far on the other side. But today I'm talking about that side called replacement theology, and that is what I'm critiquing. Replacement theology refers specifically to the idea of Israel being permanently substituted by the church. This school of thought believes that God is finished with Israel as a nation. Replacement theology's adherents do not look to current events in the Middle East for future fulfillments of prophecy. Some don't even believe in the literal second coming of Christ at all, partly because a plain reading of such prophecy involves a physical deliverance of Israel from her enemies. To justify this position, they make observations about the supernatural manner of Christ's alleged return as represented in the language of the scripture and compare it to similar language in the Old Testament that was fulfilled much differently than the way Christians expect Jesus to return. For example, part of second coming prophecy includes statements about sky and clouds. Revelation 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Many replacement theology adherents see such verses as ripe for reinterpretation. They spiritualize and allegorize the description of the Messiah's return, claiming that judgment upon Israel and or the world at large is all that is meant. Any reference to a return of Jesus as a warrior king bringing judgment is merely symbolic of God's judgment and wrath in general. That's what they'll try to tell you. Some see the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD as God's judgment upon Israel and perhaps Christ's true second coming, so to speak. Second coming in the sense that it was a judgment, not in that Christ literally returned. Again, they don't believe in a literal return. Now, if not the temple, they will point to some other moment of history to corrupt their viewpoint, but either way, to them, the clouds are to be viewed only as symbols. For illustrations, they find Old Testament passages that also talk about God coming in the clouds and show how they were not literally fulfilled, but rather mere poetic expressions. Here's an example of one of them, Isaiah 30. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. Yes, my friends, at times the Bible does use mere expression and hyperbole, but... And this is very important. Just as often God speaks plainly, just as often God speaks literally. While reading scripture, it can be dangerous to assume that one size fits all when a word such as clouds comes up. If you want to stay in the Old Testament, for examples, keep in mind we can also read about an event in the Bible when God honestly, literally did lead the Israelites through the wilderness as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
Allow me to make the obvious obvious because that's what we do on this show. In the case of Jesus, he was literally picked up in the air. Acts chapter 1. This was followed by the appearance of two angels who told his disciples to stop scratching their heads and staring at the sky. He told them Jesus would return just as he left. It's difficult to make hyperbole and symbolism out of that one. I'm reading now from Acts chapter 1. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. My friends, did Jesus depart in a cloud literally, only to return figuratively? There is no valid Bible reason to dismiss a literal second coming of Jesus. And therein lies the problem for replacement theology. Israel as a nation is central in the events associated with the return of Christ. The Antichrist, whose evil rule immediately precedes the second coming, poses as God incarnate in the Jewish temple, according to prophecy, a temple which does not exist at the moment, a temple that will still need to be rebuilt someday in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled, which temple do you think Paul is referring to? The one in Salt Lake City? My friends, what the Bible meant to the original audience is what it must mean to us. When Paul talked about this prophecy, the temple still existed. It had not yet been destroyed and torn down by the Romans. And so that's the only temple the Jews could possibly have had in mind. Granted, it's gone now, but it's been destroyed and rebuilt once. It can be rebuilt again. I'm reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul talking, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This will be followed by a time of great threat to Israel as nations around the world gather to do battle coming through Israel's valley of Armageddon. You can read about that in places such as Revelation 16, Matthew 24, Zechariah 14. Now, it's easy to understand why people did not take such predictions seriously for so many years. From the end of the Roman occupation in which a Jewish revolt was squashed all the way up to Israel's war of independence in the middle of the 20th century, there was no nation of Israel. Yes, a handful of Jews had remained in the Middle East these many years, but most, under their Roman conquerors, had been murdered, enslaved, or banished from the land. But 700 years before Christ, Isaiah the prophet shared some very interesting words regarding Israel. I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. And then he lists all kinds of countries, including Assyria, Lower Egypt, Babylon. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
Just ponder those words and consider their implications. If God is reclaiming the Jews a second time, that means he already reclaimed them by bringing them back to their land once before. And if they returned to their land once before, then they had to have been there at least one time before that. As you can see, Isaiah's prediction reveals three nations of Israel, and history attests to these three nations. The first was established by Joshua, reaching its zenith around 1000 BC under King David and his son King Solomon. After a period of civil war, Israel was split into two nations, the nation of Israel, retaining the original name, and the nation of Judah. Israel was conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. Judah was conquered later by the Babylonians in many stages, with the final deportations of Jewish slaves taking place roughly 586 BC. The first rebirth, or second Jewish nation, came about in 444 BC, following an exile to Babylon when the Persians, after subduing the Babylonians, allowed Jewish captives to return to their land. Previously, permission had already been granted for a handful to sojourn back and rebuild the temple, but now the entire city of Jerusalem was going to be re-established. This period is often known as the Second Commonwealth or the Second Temple period. Throughout most of this era, the Jews were still submissive to other nations. There was a brief period of independence under the Maccabees, which the Hanukkah holiday commemorates, followed by Rome's conquest in 63 BC. It was during the time of continued Roman occupation in the early 1st century AD that Jesus came on the scene. Then, after living under the Romans for many years, a series of Jewish uprisings caused the Romans to get fed up once and for all. Rome destroyed the temple in 70 AD and essentially destroyed the rest of Israel called Judea at the time in the early 2nd century. So, while Israel ceased to be a nation for almost 2,000 years, it was easy for Christians to dismiss prophecies centered upon Israel. Spiritual reinterpretations about the church fulfilling Israel's prophecies were understandable. All of that changed in 1947 through 1949 after a legal vote on the part of the United Nations to reestablish the state of Israel. This newborn state successfully fought off many Arab nations that were trying to attack an annihilator. Never before in history has a nation ceased to exist only to be reborn. It hadn't even happened once, but in Israel's case, it has happened twice. This phenomenon alone should be enough to showcase God's amazing power. The fact that Isaiah prophesied as much makes it even more marvelous. Bottom line, unless we want to abandon the hope of Christ's literal return and ignore prophecy, we must admit that God is not done with Israel. Now, I don't want to make the mistake and claim that because Israel is a nation again, that we're somehow definitely that last generation that will see the second coming of Christ. I don't know when Christ is going to return. I know Israel had to become a nation first, that Israel might be a nation for a hundred years. Israel might be a nation for a thousand years. So I'm not telling you when Christ will return. I'm telling you he will return. I'm telling you he will return to Israel. And those that wanted to dismiss that have a much more difficult time dismissing it now that some prophecy about Israel in its own right, namely the Jews returning to the land of their ancestors, has been fulfilled. However, the stronger, more common justification for replacement theology reminds us that the promises to Israel were given under the Old Covenant, and today God has instigated a new covenant. Well, it's true. We are under a new covenant today. It's also true that God made two 
different covenants with Israel, and we'll go over both of those tomorrow, the covenant of Moses, the covenant of Abraham. While covenant talks certainly offers a much better argument, the argument is only a half-truth, and half-truths can be quite dangerous. So we will examine this comparison of the covenants on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, this is Bob Siegel making the obvious obvious. Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob.